Hi everyone, Louise and Bri are here with a new episode of Hallway Talks. And you won't believe who we found in the virtual hallways of NYU this week. None other than the Dean of the Wagner School of Public Service, Cherry Gleed. She talked to us about her experience as a healthcare economist under the Bush, Clinton and Obama administrations, her time working with the team responsible for the Affordable Care Act, and she dropped some great life lessons along the way. So grab a cup of coffee, get comfortable and enjoy the conversation. Recorded Friday, 11th of September, 2020. Thank you so much for joining us, Dean Reed. You've had an amazingly long career in public health policy, specifically working under three different presidencies alongside top policymakers and economists in Washington, D.C. And we'd love to hear how all of that got started. So could you tell us a little bit about your personal journey into policy and public service? So I did a PhD in, in labor market economics, and my dissertation advisor advised me to do to study the labor market impacts of the HIV epidemic, which was raging at that time in the United States. And then when I went to get a job, I applied for jobs as a labor economist, but all the departments that looked at me said, you know, we don't really want you as a labor economist, but we could really use you as a healthcare economist. Would you be willing to be a healthcare economist? And I said, well, I don't know any healthcare economics, but if you want me to be a healthcare economist, (laughs) actually what happened is I got an, uh, Columbia was interested in me. I'd always wanted to move to New York City. So I was like, whatever, I want to move to New York City. That's what I really want to do. I'll be a healthcare economist. So I learned healthcare economics on the job as I was teaching it. I would be like one lecture ahead of the students learning healthcare economics. And I taught healthcare economics for two, three years. And then there was an election, a special election for Senate in the state of Pennsylvania. And the person who won the election was expected to go to the Republican. Instead, a Democrat won it. It was a man named Harris Wofford. He was the father of Suzanne Wofford, who was the dean of the Gallatin School at NYU. Sort of cute story. And he ran on a platform of uh, single-payer universal health insurance. This was in 1992. So all of a sudden, everyone in Congress, this is the, sort of the end of the, the term of the administration of George H.W. Bush, which followed eight years of the Reagan administration. Nobody had been talking about health care in Washington for 12 years. And all of a sudden, Harris Wofford wins this election. And healthcare is the center of Washington attention. There was like 120 bills introduced in Congress about healthcare that year. And George H.W. Bush and his team decided before they entered into the election campaign, they needed a health plan, sort of like what's happening now, right? Trump needs a health plan, right? They didn't have a health plan, they needed a health plan. And so they were trying to find people who could work for them to develop a healthcare plan. Now, one of the jobs that exists in the US government, quite unique, I actually have been interested in whether other countries have something like it, and most don't. There's an organization called the Council of Economic Advisors, part of the executive branch of the of the federal government, that has three senior economists, very distinguished economists, as the members of the council. And then every year they recruit 10 faculty from different universities around the country who spend one year advising the president in principle. I mean, they never see the president, but they advise the advisors to the president on economic policy. And they also hire some PhD students, some other people, but it's a very small unit. And there is always a slot, or there was at that time, always a slot on the Council of Economic Advisors for a labor economist. So that March of 1992, I got a call from one of the senior economists to say, would I be interested in coming to Washington 
to serve on the Council of Economic Advisors as a labor economist and healthcare economist, because they had a labor economic slot, but they were really interested in healthcare. And so how many people knew that? Like, that was me. That's what I did. It was completely accidental that that's what I did. But in fact, it's what I did. And I said, well, you know, I'm not a Republican. And they were like, we don't care. I said, I'm not an American. And they were like, we don't care. So off I went to Washington. Um, in the meantime, I, I met my future husband. We got engaged while I was in Washington. It's another cute story, but it doesn't matter. I moved to Washington August the 1st. Pretty soon it became obvious that Bush was not going to win the election. But in any case, the Council of Economic Advisors produces a book every year called the Economic Report of the President, which involves getting to know everybody who works in a policy area in Washington. So I wrote a chapter about the US healthcare system, sort of touting the Bush health plan of the time, explaining why, what its logic was. And in order to write that chapter, I got to know all the civil servants in the senior jobs all over Washington. So comes January, wow. George Bush leaves the White House, everybody leaves. But the 10 faculty who are at the Council of Economic Advisors, they don't leave because the, the custom is that they stay on. Mm -hmm. So I'm still there. The president comes in January 20th and with him, some of his economic advisors, one of whom a kid like three years younger than I was, and I was not that old then, um, from Harvard, whom I knew, came in with one of the groups and he was able to vouch for me that I was not like a crazy Republican. I was not even a American. I was just Sherry from Canada and like whatever. Um, <laughs> so the president came in on January 20th and two weeks later, which is my birthday roughly, I was in a meeting in the oh. Roosevelt Room of the White House with the President of the United States helping to develop the Clinton healthcare plan, which was totally wild. I was so <laughs> out of my depth, you can't imagine. The only thing I had, and they really needed me because of this, is that I had what in the old days used to be called a Rolodex or an address book or you know the LinkedIn file. I knew who you had to call because I'd written that whole chapter about the history of the, about the US healthcare system. So I got to work on the Clinton healthcare plan. So I left Washington when my term was up. I'd already gotten married in the meantime. I didn't live in the same city as my husband. We used to say we were very Victorian. Some people lived together before marriage. We didn't even live together after marriage. And I moved back to New York. I wrote a book about the Clinton health plan. And then a couple of years later, I became the chair of my department at the School of Public Health. I, my philosophy of this was I wanted to be useful. I wanted to be a person who people found to be useful because I like being useful. Not even like, not, not because I had some goal in mind because honestly, I had no goal in mind. I was just trying to get from one, I had two kids, small kids at this point. I was just trying to get from one day to the next. So people would ask me to do things and I was notorious for never saying no to anything. Anyway, that was a good thing because then when Obama was elected, I was not part of the campaign. I knew nothing about it. Like I was not a registered Democrat. I was like, barely a politically sentient human being. Um, I got a call in early January, an email from somebody I knew, and my husband was in California. I got an email on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning saying, would you like to come to Washington and be the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation? Can I it, do yeah. a quickly interruption? I think yeah. let's, you know, build suspense. You got the call. Are you going to say yes? Are you going to say no? Say no. We okay, don't we'll know. Leave the suspense. You can wait let's until the end. But what I, I'm really interested to, to know, first of all, your story is so relatable to so many people. I think most people don't end up as advisors to the president in the White House. But this notion that you don't really know where your career is going to end and you just say yes and you get the chances and things are building up, 
I think this is so relatable, especially now when we have our society collapsing and we are trying to, you know, graduate and do the best we can. I absolutely love to hear. And what I want to ask you is how different it was to work on the council for Bush and then for Clinton. Here's the thing I learned. So first of all, I should say, at that moment, Bush was working on a health plan that actually is not very different from Obamacare. There was a lot more consensus between the Republicans and the Democrats at that time about the direction of a health care plan. Clinton's plan that we developed afterwards was not, I mean, it was different. It was certainly more liberal than Bush's plan, but they were not so very different. So there wasn't this feeling of, right now, I think if, if you were working in the Trump White House and then you worked in a Biden White House, it would be you know completely different. But at that time, it wasn't so much. Two other things to know. One is, I was at the Council of Economic Advisors and everyone was an economist. And on the whole, economists are more like other economists than they are like Democrats or Republicans. It's a particular worldview that people share. And so I have, I have quite a number of friends who, are, who have served as economists in Republican administrations. And I would say you wouldn't necessarily, from a conversation with them, know the difference between them and the ones who worked in Democratic administrations. It, there are some differences. There are certainly people at the edges, for sure, but it's not, it, it isn't radically different. They're all economists. They went to the same graduate schools. They were classmates. They, they go to the same conferences. They edit, they referee each other's papers. It's actually a really interesting phenomenon in the university or anywhere that certain things cut through. So discipline, academic discipline kind of cuts through often, or at least in economics. But the other thing that I learned is especially when you're a pretty junior person, and I was a pretty junior person, the most important thing is the quality of the people you work for. I was really fortunate because the person I worked directly for in the Bush administration was a great, a wonderful, kind, thoughtful man who cared about healthcare, who wanted to get, who wanted to move towards universal insurance. And I worked for another, Gail Walensky, who's still active in this area. And Admittedly, she was not, they were not fans of single-payer universal health insurance. They would not have been Bernie Sanders fans, but they did want to get everybody covered. So it was more about, there was not disagreement about what we wanted to do. There might have been a disagreement about what the best means to do that would be. And then when the Obama people came in, I worked for Laura Tyson. She was a fabulous boss. She was also thoughtful. It's really easy in Washington to know what a good boss is. Because you go into a meeting in the old days, I guess now they do it with phones, but maybe not because you don't usually can't take a phone into the uh, White House. But so what happens at those meetings is the principals, the cabinet secretaries, they sit around a table and behind each one sits their prime staffer, right? Like in a boxing ring where your, your, your boxer goes out into the ring and you're the trainer sitting in the corner, right? <laughs> so I was the trainer sitting in the corner. Laura was in the ring. And yeah. you pass them notes because they don't know everything. They can't possibly know everything that all of their staff have worked on. It's actually one of the really interesting things also in Washington. You know, when you're in academia, you only talk about things you understand, you really know. But once you get to Washington and you get to above a certain point, you have to trust your staff because you can't possibly know everything, right? They're gonna say to you, you're gonna go into this meeting and you're gonna say A, B, C, D. And there is no way you can check to see whether A, B, C, D is true. You have to trust your staff. She would say, Sherry says, when she would get a note from me, she would say, Sherry says. Most of the managers would not say that. I was very lucky. I had a fantastic boss. 
That's fascinating. I love to get this insight on the differences between working in Washington and I guess any place else, but even more specifically academia, it's fascinating. Yeah, and yeah. I would say to, to Wagner students, the thing you should look for in your first job is a good boss, more than Absolutely. anything else. If you can find somebody you admire, who can manage their, who manages their program, who will let you grow, who sees your growth as an affirmation of their own success, like their own success is your growth, like then you're going to be happy. You're going to enjoy what you're doing. I mean, you don't want to work for somebody doing something you hate, but it is better to work for somebody who is really going to nurture you in a job that is not necessarily 100% the thing you want to be doing than to work for a terrible boss doing something you really care about. That's just going to make you crazy. You're going to be so depressed because you want to do something and you can't accomplish it and you can't contribute. It's like, it's just very frustrating. So that actually brings me to um, a plan that you worked on that actually didn't come to fruition, wasn't able to pass. Uh, when you were on the president's task force under Clinton in 93, and then that health plan kind of collapsed uh, between yes. 93 and 94. Could you tell us how that happened, what the process there was? Well, it was, we call this in economics, overdetermined. There were a lot of reasons that that plan collapsed. There were like I, I wrote a book about one reason, but there were many, many reasons why the plan collapsed. It was, it, there were theoretical reasons and there were political reasons and there were managerial reasons. It was not, the process was not managed well. So one of the things, I, I think most of the people who worked on the Obama plan were veterans of that experience and the politics of the Obama plan ran beautifully. So one, another thing I learned in this process, which I found fascinating is that institutions work according to rules and you make progress, the better, you make more progress if you can understand the rules and you know how to play with the rules, not just by the rules, but with the rules. So the American government is governed by hundreds of rules, thousands of rules. If you have thought them through and you have it lined up so you know how you navigate those rules, like some complicated chess game or bridge game because it's more like bidding against other people right you have much more luck than if you just try to brute force get your thing done so the clinton people they spent a lot of time designing their plan but they did not spend enough time thinking through how you get a plan enacted i would say almost the reverse was true of the obama people they spent their time thinking about how you get a plan enacted and that's why they got a plan enacted you mentioned how the politics of the ACA is what made it pass. And Louisa and I were talking about this before uh, the interview about how close the vote was. Oh my goodness. <laughs> 39 Democrats in the House actually voted against the ACA. Yeah. And so as someone who's an economist, as a witness of this historic, momentous health policy passing and almost not passing, how did you feel in that moment? So I wasn't in Washington yet at that moment because it took a year and a half for me to get my Senate confirmation, which is also part of this whole messy wow. process thing. But I will say, you know, <laughs> nobody at all believed this thing was going to happen. The more you had worked in this field, the less likely you thought it was going to happen. It was pretty amazing that it happened. And of course, we didn't really, I think until the first round of people had actually signed up for the exchanges in by the beginning of 2014, it wasn't really until then that we felt much confidence that something had actually been accomplished. So you have to ask yourself, well, why would some Democrats vote against it? Why or why was it so tight? And, and you can see it playing out now with the stimulus bill. You know, you're, 
it's a game. Can I get a little bit more? If I hold out, can I get this thing that I want added to the bill? How long do I have to strategize? If I'm the marginal person, how much more can I get from leadership if I hold out? And you know that what happened, what will have happened, is that Nancy Pelosi, because she was the speaker at that time, sat down with her whips and said, how many people can we let out? How many people do we need to have? How many people can I allow to vote against it? So, so that I get the margin I want. And which of the people am I going to let go? I'm going to tell them that, you know, you can go. I mean, she doesn't really have the power to force them not to, but she can make their lives pretty difficult. I have to ask you, thinking about how difficult and how long of a process it was to get the ACA rolling, all the concessions that you had to make to make it approved, how do you feel now looking at what the Republicans have been doing with the ACA for the last four years do you wish that you had done something different when the bill was first approved? Or do you think that there is something now that we still can do? I mean, we could make things better in the bill. So I think that's for sure. There are definitely things we could do. If, if the Democrats take the House and the Senate and there's a Democratic president, I think there will be efforts to make the bill stronger, to make the law stronger. But I think one of the really fascinating things actually, and perhaps something we didn't even we did not anticipate is that just as it was almost miraculous that the thing passed, it has been much harder to take it apart than one would have expected. I mean, Trump and the Republicans in the Senate and the House for the whole time have been saying they want to repeal this thing, get rid of it, take it apart, you know, smash it to smithereens. They're back in the Supreme Court arguing against it. And yet here we are, it's still running. And every year, a couple more states sign up for the Medicaid expansion. And, you know, it's, I'm not going to say that the thing is perfect. It is very far from perfect, but it has been much more robust than I think anyone would have necessarily believed. The fact that for the first two years of the Trump administration, when they had a Republican House and a Republican Senate, they were not able to do very much in terms of uh, repealing the ACA, that's pretty remarkable. It truly is. It's really interesting seeing how healthcare in the United States is evolving over time. I would be very interested to know your opinion on Biden's um, public option proposal. So I have a paper coming out in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, <laughs> about, about Biden's healthcare plan. So I can talk, talk a little bit about, about it from there. So, you know, the public option proposal is an idea that was formally discussed in the context of the Obama plan, but actually had been on the table even in the days of the Clinton plan. It's not a totally new idea. But it has morphed in its application, which is kind of a funny thing. There are two reasons to have a public option. One is because you think that the public option is the camel's nose under the tent of single-payer health insurance. So once you have a public option, it's going to be so attractive, everyone will move to it, and then you're going to have universal, universal single-payer health insurance. So that's one plausible argument for a public option. But it's not the argument that's usually used to sell it because that wouldn't really work. Um, so the question <laughs> is, what other reasons could you give for having a public option? One is if you're afraid that there are not going to be enough insurance companies competing in these marketplaces, then you might want to have a public option just to keep them competing and to keep the marketplaces honest. And that was the argument that was largely used in 2008 nine, whatever, when they were discussing the public option in the Obama bill, mm -hmm. that it would be a constraining influence on the existing insurance companies, that it would provide competition and so on. Right now, um, most of the marketplaces actually have pretty good competition, and that's not as good an argument as it was once. But Biden's 
plan for public option actually deals with two problems that nobody had thought about back in 2009. They were not actual problems in 2009. One is that about a dozen states have not expanded Medicaid. And that creates this truly awful situation where if your income is extremely low or even zero in some states, maybe in some states there is no, there is no low enough if you're a single adult, but in other states, yeah. maybe if you were in 20% of the poverty level or some really minute amount of money that you can't even imagine, nobody can be living on that amount of money. Yeah. Um, only in those, in those circumstances are you eligible for Medicaid. And if your income is above 100% of the federal poverty level, you're eligible for the subsidies in the marketplaces. So if you're a little bit richer, you're doing okay. If you're a little bit poorer, you're doing okay. And if you're in the middle, you have no, nothing. Nothing is Nowhere to go. Nobody thought about that when Obamacare happened because they thought that the Medicaid expansion would be taken up in all the states, but then the Supreme Court changed the rules. The Supreme Court allowed the states to get out of the Medicaid expansion and several states decided not to expand. Now, every year, more and more states sign on, which is great, but there are still, Texas isn't in, like there are lots of people in Texas. And they have, there are about 2 million people who are in this, what's called the coverage gap. They don't have any coverage. So Biden says, okay, I'm going to create a public option. It's going to be a federal public option, and it's going to be available to those people. So here are 2 million people. We're going to just give them an option that they don't have at all. There's nothing there for them. And that is not anything anybody had ever talked about before, but it's a very concrete reason to want to go in there. The second concrete reason is that over time, since the ACA passed, but continuing a trend that had started before it, employer plans have gotten, some employer plans, not all employer plans, have gotten uh, to have higher and higher deductibles, and many of them are not very good. And workers who are in those plans are kind of stuck, because if they, they're not eligible to enter the marketplaces because they have an employer offer, and the employer offer is not very good. So Biden promises that if they want to, they will be allowed to enroll in the public option. And so again, it's a very concrete set of people and a very concrete problem that the public option will address. There's this common consensus of moving healthcare away from being attached to employment. And I think COVID has been a good example of why it's important to do that. I do want to delve a little bit into COVID and its impact on uh, how we think about healthcare. And specifically, I know you've been doing some research regarding mental health care policy. So if I could ask you about, has COVID changed your mind about mental health care policy in the U.S. and what's needed at all? That's an interesting question. Um, I think mental health policy has been somewhat less affected than other kinds of policy with COVID because it is, it lends itself more easily to telemedicine. And I think telepsychiatry has caught on and probably is not going to go away. And that may actually lead to an expansion of uh, mental health care because a lot of people who probably could benefit from mental health care are not willing to go regularly for mental health visits, um, but maybe they'd be willing to do online visits. So it, it actually could be beneficial in that way. The other piece of mental health that is affected by COVID, and it's particularly um, appropriate to talk about it today on 9-11, is the mental health consequences of catastrophe. When 9-11 happened in New York, it was a huge shock to, to the mental health of everybody who lived around here, maybe all over the country, but the effect in New York was particularly palpable. And the city of New York set up um, a very aggressive mental health outreach program to help people cope with the stresses that followed 9-11. And we've been talking some about how a similar project is probably going to be needed sort of as COVID winds down or we wind up in a place where we can even be talking about what to do because both the, the mortality 
in New York, I mean, I can only speak right now for New York, but the, the huge mortality toll in New York, but also the extraordinary dislocation of people's lives and the grief people feel just because of that dislocation are likely to cause mental health problems. I love that you mentioned tally analysis because this is something that I've been doing since I moved here into the States. I still have my therapist back from Brazil and yeah. it works wonderfully. I'm a big advocate for it. <laughs> I hope that more people adopt it. As we now go to the last part of the interview, like we were saying, 2020 has been a crazy year. There's not enough to be not said about yet. it. Not yeah. over yet. It's just getting you know, crazier. And so I think what we want to ask you is, what's your best and worst case scenario for 2021? And oh, what's your advice for us to live through it? How would we get there? I don't even want to think about the worst case and best case scenarios. They're so terrifying. I think one of the things that 2020 has told us is that the range of things that we think about is too narrow. Like there's just like, it's like if you worked in finance, they talk yes. about how 2008 was a black swan event. And then, you know, what we've seen is like a whole flock of black yeah. swans. You know, like, and, and I can't even imagine all the things that could still happen. I mean, I, I would say one, so I'm going to say one kind of funny, sort of strange thing. My, my, my parents were both Holocaust survivors. So I grew up in a family where the idea that life was normal, my parents were Holocaust survivors and refugees and like their lives had been destroyed many times over, not, not once, but, but two or three times over. And at one point in the middle of COVID, I was complaining to my mother who is normally not, she doesn't usually think this way. She said, look, you know, you're not starving. You're not in a bunker and nobody is shooting you. And I thought, you know, one of the things that is positive about the experience, the circumstance right now, and in some ways different even from 9-11, is that at least with respect to COVID, and even with respect to the issues around race and other things, there is an enormous wellspring of goodwill. And that actually keeps some hope for me, that, that we are going to come out of this, we are being hit by something, by, by many things, by systemic injustice, by, by a pandemic, whatever. But we also have lots of good people who want to make the world a better place. And they're at least a very robust minority, even if we learn that they're not a majority. That's how I you think know, about it. <laughs> it's so interesting to hear you being hopeful about this because as young people coming into policy and public service, we're a bit disillusioned. We're a bit already losing hope. So for someone who's spent... No, no, you can't <laughs> lose hope. That If you lose hope, then I lose hope, right? My yeah. hope is, look, it would be a wonderful thing if I believed that all of you are going to transform the world into a perfect place. <laughs> You're not going to transform the world into a perfect place. I've spent my whole life working on healthcare policy, and I don't think I'm going to come up with a perfect healthcare system in my lifetime. But I can feel really good, at least when I'm worried about my life, that at various times I've done a little bit of good for a small number of people. And look, you know, if you can do that, wow, is your life worth living? Every person has it in them. I, I don't know. I sound like deeply philosophical, and I'm not a deeply philosophical person. But you all have the, the ability to do good and you can look around you and you can do good. And there are so many opportunities to do good. Imagine if you worked in a perfect world, what point would there be a public service if you worked in a perfect world? We need you because the world is so messed up. We'll do our best. <laughs> uh, so to close that, you actually led me to this question. You've been Dean at Wagner since 2013. Yeah. It's a long time. And I'm sure the role has evolved and taken it on. It sure has. Yes. 
<laughs> so what is the legacy that you would like to leave behind as dean at Wagner? Well, I think the first legacy of a dean at Wagner is all the students who've graduated while I was dean and who are going to go out there and do really fabulous things. And, um, and the ways, and, you know, and I hope my legacy is that we have done, we have made some improvements within the school or some changes within the school that I think will better enable our students to do that. I mean, I think that's what we are about. I, I think Wagner, unusual for school, because we're a professional school, is not about Wagner. I mean, like Wagner is, a, is an instrument for the betterment of humanity. It, and that's how I think about it. So, so are we giving you the tools that you can really use to get out there? And we've done a few things that I'm very pleased that we did. And I hope that you feel it, that over the summer, the staff and the faculty put in so much time to make sure that this fall, your experience is not going to be diminished because of this horrible epidemic. And that's a good, I mean, to the extent that I've had a, help, a hand in making that happen, I'm, I'm very pleased. Absolutely. You've been deemed through a real emergency this year, and it could not have been easy. Dinklage, this was really a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking time of your day to You're come here talking to us. Hope to see you around the hallways of Do you want to know the Puck. end of the story, though? You asked me to cut off my Yes, yes. this is of where we're at. <laughs> yes, please. So, you so got the happened? phone call. So I got the phone call. call. I got this call or email, and my husband was in California, and I had two kids. I still have two kids, God. Uh, thank, thank God. Uh, at that time, the, my two kids were, Olivia was 13 and Jonathan was 10. And it said, would you like to be assistant secretary for planning and evaluation in the Obama administration? And my immediate reaction was to start crying. My husband was in California and I don't cry very much. I'm not a, I'm not a teary person, but all I could think of is like, my life is wonderful. I have this wonderful life. I have a wonderful husband. I have two fabulous kids. They're young. We're not going to move to Washington. And yet this is the best job in the world. Like as far as given what I do, this is the dream job. I was expecting that somebody might invite me to do a different job. And then I would have said no, because I had a great life and everything was good. And I have these two kids. And this job was like the one job that you don't really get a chance to say no. And I could not imagine what I was going to do. But I don't know where you guys were all, you were little when Obama was elected. <laughs> yeah. But Everyone was so excited about Obama. So I asked my kids, like, would it be okay if I went off to Washington to work for Obama and you'd be at home with dad? And they were like, yes, go, you get to work for Obama. And the holy grail. And my husband was like, don't worry, we'll manage. And you know what? We managed and it was a great, fabulous experience. And then when I came back, I became a professor again and I didn't get to manage anything. And then the Wagner job opened up and I was like, excellent. I don't think, you know, I love public service. I think it's so important. It's here in New York. I don't have to leave my kids again. And I get to manage something and it will be fun. And that's how it happens. So I have actually one last question now. So, what would be the other call? What's the other call that you uh, could get know. today that would make you go <laughs> back to Washington? I don't think about it. I don't think about that. <laughs> no calls. <laughs> no calls. I don't think about that. Okay. Totally fair. And I'm very happy that you're here with us at Wagner. Thank you very much. And thank yeah. you for doing this, guys. <laughs>